All right, Daniel Revelation for Beginners, lesson number 12. Lesson number 12, last lesson in the series. La last lesson in the series. Now, if somebody asks you, you're talking about religion, you're talking about the book of Revelation, because usually most people say they have trouble with the book of Revelation to understand. So if somebody says to you, what's the book of Revelation about? Your answer is going to be very simple. It's going to be, the book of Revelation is about the struggle between the Roman Empire and the early church in the first and second century. That's what the book of Revelation is about. They'll ask uh, perhaps, well, what are all the symbols about? And you will answer, well, the book is written in a particular literary style. Here's the key word, apocalyptic, a literary style. Uh, the apocalyptic literary style understood to Jews. The Jews at that time, they understood that style of writing, if you wish. Uh, but the Romans did not understand, so they could communicate. John could communicate his ideas and his prophecies and his whatever he was teaching about the Roman Empire without Rome knowing uh, what was the content of his book. Then they may ask, well, what does the story mean? And you will say, the story is simply a series of visions that John the Apostle had that has a certain plot line, you know, a certain plot line to follow. And so here's the plot line, actually very simple. First of all, Jesus speaks to John and the church about the fact that He is about to reveal what will happen in the near future in the struggle between the Roman Empire and the church. Secondly, the story is told in a series of visions that John sees in heaven. For example, he sees God display His power, the power that God has to execute judgment on Rome. He sees Satan displaying his power, the beast and the false prophet and others that he marshals together to go against God. Uh, he sees Satan attacking the church with Satan's allies, and then God pronouncing judgment on Satan and his allies, and they are thrown into hell. And then God and the church rejoice in their victory over Satan and his servants as they take their place in heaven. And that's the plot line. That's pretty much the plot line. That's the story of the book of Revelation. Now in our last lesson we saw God defeating the allies of Satan, the beast and the harlot and the false prophet. And in the last two chapters of the book, John will describe the end of the demon Satan himself and the final home of the saints which is in heaven. So our final episode, if you wish, begins in chapter 20 and that is the fall of Satan and the victory of the saints the final judgment, chapter 20. And these are the main events that take place in this chapter. So we begin with uh, the fall of Satan in chapter 20, verses one to three. Now, I said to you last uh, time that the story keeps the evil ringleader and his defeat for the very end. And as I said, we've seen a lot of movies like that where the, the, the villain is kept to the last 15 minutes of the movie, if you wish, before he's taken down, right? So the same idea here in the book of Revelation. Uh, we see it here. 
the defeat of Satan is short and is swift and is complete. So let's begin reading chapter 20 beginning in verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. So the angel, of course, is the angel who sounds judgment. Ever notice it's always an angel uh, in the book of Revelation. It's an angel that throws the sickle. It's an angel who pours out the bowls. Angels are the ones who sound the trumpets. Now an angel arrives to announce and bring judgment upon Satan. The abyss, of course, is hell, the place of suffering, the underworld. Continue reading, verse two. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. Satan is bound for a thousand years. So we need to kind of explain this a little bit. Bound in what way? You know, I mean, the imagery is bound, you know, ties him up with a chain, but the, the meaning is no power, no effect. Is that what it means? He has no power, no effect. Well, he's bound in that he will no longer deceive the nations, because remember that was the accusation. He deceived the nation, he deceived them and seduced them into idolatry. And so he deceived the nations into emperor worship and in the past into all forms of idolatry and wickedness with nations in the past. So how is he bound? Well, he's bound with the gospel. The gospel is the thing that binds him because now the gospel reveals the power of God. The gospel also reveals the power of Satan to deceive. And because he is revealed, he now is severely limited. His power is bound by the truth about him and the truth about God. Now people know the truth. They know who God is. They know who Satan is. They know his tactics. They know the punishment. They have salvation offered to them in the gospel. So the gospel is the power, if you wish, that binds Satan, that keeps him back. Then it says, you know, bound for how long? Well, a thousand years, it says. Remember when we studied Jewish numerology, the significance of numbers, the number 10 meant something was complete, something was mature. So if it's 10 times 10 times 10, a thousand, then it's really something that is extremely mature, something that is perfect in time, which only God knows, in which God's will is completed and not in a minute or a millisecond too late or too early. So a thousand years represents some time frame that God knows and that God executes, which is perfect. It doesn't mean you know, one, one year, two year, three year, 998 years, 990, you know, it doesn't mean numerical years. It symbolizes a perfect time that God has set. And so Satan is limited in his power for a certain predetermined time, which John will later say is also time when other things are going to happen as well. And he's limited in his power. And the imagery that I used there is you have a, you know, a very mean dog. Okay? Uh, and that dog doesn't respect anybody. He's a biter. You know? He's a mean dog, but you keep him anyways. And what do you do? You take a chain, right? And you put him on a chain or you know, a strong, steady chain. You drive a spike into the ground. 
and the dog can wander around in the yard and do his business and so on and so forth, but he can't get further than 20 feet away from his chain. He has a, you know, he has a kind of a circle of influence there, if you wish, and if, you, if, if anybody steps in within the 20 feet, they have to deal with the dog, but the dog is limited. He, there's a, he, he can't go past 20 feet. Well, this is the same idea here. Satan is bound. He still has the power to deceive. He still has a great power to cause mischief and evil and so on and so forth, but it's limited. It's not an unlimited power that he has. He's been bound for a time. Okay? So let's keep going in verse three. And he threw him, speaking of the Satan, and he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things he must be released for a short time. So Satan is released for a short time. A predetermined time of his restraint will end and for a short time he will exercise his influence. Well, what is his influence? Well, to blaspheme God or to deceive individuals into believing a lie. So he'll make one last push near the end of time and, they, and this coincides with Paul's description of the end times. Now if you switch over to 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2 verses 3 to 12, Paul talks about the end of time. There'll be a man of lawlessness and he will be destroyed by Christ when Christ comes. And when you take these two scriptures and put them together, the idea is that this person will destroy many and he'll be manipulated by who? Well, by Satan. When? The time that Satan is released for a time. Okay? Just like Satan used the Roman Empire for a time to persecute the church. And John is saying that uh, the Roman Empire will eventually fall and the church will rise up and will you know, overcome this type of thing. Well, now John is, is going to a prophecy that goes to the end of time, not just the near future, like for Rome, that was a couple of hundred years into the future. Now here he's talking about what's going to happen at the end of time, and it's a repeat of what's happening here. So for a time, Satan will be bound, he'll be restrained. And then near the end of time, that restraint will be loosened for a short amount of time. And what will he do? He'll do exactly the same thing as he did with Rome. There'll be a, quote, man of lawlessness. Remember, in here he's talking about the harlot and the beast and the dragon, right? Those are the images of the enemy of the church. Well then, at the end of time, another image that Paul uses is the man of lawlessness. And that man of lawlessness will be manipulated by who? Well, by Satan. To do what? Well, to do exactly the same thing that Satan does all the time. And that's to attack the church and to create mischief and disbelief and so on and so forth. Okay, so do you, you see the two prophecies, how one is for a short time, one is for the end of time. So John leaves uh, Satan's final demise hanging, just leaves it there. And he goes on to describe the victory of the saints in chapter 20, verses four to six and seven to 10. So let's read verses four to six. It says, then I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand and they came to life uh, and um, uh, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. 
The rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these the second death has no power, but they will be, um, uh, they will be uh, priests of God and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. And so further comfort is given to the first century church as John describes the martyrs who have been killed in the persecution um, and that they are alive in heaven and rejoicing with Christ. And he also mentions that the other saints will join them in this rejoicing after this thousand year reign is over. Now, before these souls were under the altar, remember in chapter 18, the souls, the martyrs, they were under the altar and they were crying out for justice. But now, with the destruction of Satan, they have been vindicated and they are now on the throne with Christ. So their position has changed. They now reign in heaven, the martyrs. They now reign in heaven. So the thousand years is the time between the binding of Satan and when did the binding of Satan happen? Well, at Pentecost. The gospel is preached. The truth is out there now. So Satan doesn't have free reign. You know, the gospel is preached. Uh, the church is formed. The truth is out there. People know. So yes, can he cause mischief and evil? and Yeah, he can still do that, but he doesn't have free reign to do that. Now he has to deal with the truth of the gospel, which is finally preached. The Messiah has come. Jesus has resurrected. The truth and God's will and purpose for mankind is finally made clear uh, to the world. So the thousand years is the time between the binding of Satan, that's Pentecost when the gospel is preached, until just before the return of Christ when the faithful will resurrect. So John mentions the first resurrection and that is the resurrection of the martyrs to be with Christ in heaven. And this precedes the general resurrection at the return of Jesus. So they reign with Christ for a thousand years. So what he's saying is, don't worry about the ones who have died, the ones who have been martyred. They're with God in heaven. They're reigning with Christ already. All right? they're, they're at the place where you want to go. And they will be, reign with Him for how long? A thousand years. They're going to reign with Him from the time the gospel has been preached all the way to the end of the world, they're going to be up there reigning with Him. And what's going to happen after that thousand years is over? Well, then you people will all come together and join them and be with Christ in the air to reign with Him forever. And that's what Paul is talking about in Thessalonians. All right. And so we read verses 7 to 10. He says, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they, uh, they uh, came up uh, on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so this is the victory. See how quickly it goes by? If, you, you know, if you're not paying attention, you miss it. You know, the victory is highlighted by Satan's final destruction. So the end of the thousand year reign is marked by a brief 
Now remember in the Bible, a brief could be two days or 200 years, but a brief time, not 10,000 years, okay? A brief time, a brief period where Satan's powers are restored and he uses them to try to once again deceive and destroy. His beasts, or allies this time, John writes, are represented by Old Testament nations and enemies of Israel who were destroyed by God in the past, Gog and Magog. Don't be looking forward to a nation called Gog or Magog, you won't find it. Those are Old Testament nations that existed back there who are enemies of Israel. So what John does, he goes back and he gets the names of you know, old you know, uh, enemies of Israel and he brings them forward and he says these are, the, these are the types that will now be used by Satan in his second attack if you wish. And so what he's describing is another Armageddon, another Armageddon like image that is given. This time it's going to happen at the end of history, at the end time prophecy, but this time not only the allies are destroyed but Satan himself meets his final and eternal end which is eternal torment. So before he's describing the, the, the destruction of the allies of Satan, which were in reality the Roman Empire. Okay? Now he fast forwards to the end of time, real time, and just before the end of real time he says there'll be another surge, if you wish, of Satan's power and activity and he will gather allies as he's done in the past attack the church, attack believers, but this will be short-lived, he says, because this time uh, the Lord is not only going to destroy his allies like he did in the first century, he's going to destroy Satan as well, and it'll be the end once and for all. And so he talks about the final judgment in verses 11 to 15, I'm not going to read that. Um, now that the historical end of the world spoken of by Jesus and Paul and Peter are also described by John in similar fashion. A great insurrection of evil cut short by Christ's appearance. The resurrection of the righteous to join the martyrs in heaven, the destruction of the natural universe, the destruction of Satan, and the great judgment of the nations. Now remember, not in this particular class, but I once told you when you're talking about what happens at the end of the world. And in different places in the Bible, there are descriptions of things that happen at the end of the world. Paul, for example, talks about in 2 Thessalonians, you know, that the dead in Christ will rise first, uh, you know, and then those who are alive will meet them in the air. And then Peter talks about the judgment of the wicked. And, and here he talks about the judgment of Satan and the great judgment scene. And then uh, 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 there's talk in Jude about the destruction of the heavens and the earth and the new heavens. And the, you know, there's all kinds of things you know, that, are, that are talked about throughout the Bible that take place at the end of the world. But I'm telling you, all of these things all happen in the twinkling of an eye. It's not, oh, in January we're going to have the resurrection of the, the saints, you know what I'm saying? And then a couple of months later we're going to have those who are with Christ, you know, and four years later after that, well, we'll start to see the destruction of the heavens and the earth, you know, and then in another 150 years this will happen. No, 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 no. When Jesus comes, all of these things, the dead in Christ rise, those who are alive when He comes 
are transformed into their glorious state and these two bodies come together to be with Christ. The evil also are risen and judged. The evil who remain are judged and sent to their punishment. Satan is destroyed. The old heavens and the earth are destroyed. The new heavens and the earth, the new dimension is now comes into appearance. The heavenly kingdom, all of this all happens in a twinkling of an eye. One moment you're alive and you blink and the next moment you open your eyes and you're there. And all of these things have happened. But because we're human and we live in a time continuum and we write things down, well, each writer writes about different things in different ways. So you have to kind of piece them together and understand that it all takes place in a very compressed amount of time as far as we're concerned. And so here, you know, John only describes what happens to those who are not Christians or not Christ's. The believers and of course is described in the next two chapters. So in this chapter he only talks about what happens to the evil. As for the non-believers, Jesus is on the throne, he says. Everyone judged according to their names in the book of life, the believers and their deeds, obedience. Everyone is judged. Death and the underworld are destroyed because without Satan and sin, well, there will be no death and there will be no Hades. Those whose deeds were evil, actual committed sins or disobedience to Christ or disbelief, in other words, those who are not written in the book of life, well, those will go to their own reward, which will be punishment in the lake of fire. And notice one thing that there is a same this is the same place where Satan and the beast and the false prophet, they all go to the same place. Well, so do the evil and disobedience. They go to that place as well. So please don't let anyone tell you that hell, a place of eternal suffering, doesn't exist. Especially when they use the argument, it's not fair. It's not fair. Or I can't imagine God doing that. Well, you know what? I can't kind of imagine it either, except He said He did it. He doesn't tell you why, he just says, I'm doing it. So please avoid that place. So now that Satan, we'll go back to the book, now that Satan's been judged and he has been sentenced and John has prepared his readers of the future for the end time when he will reappear for a short time, now that the general judgment of the wicked and unbelievers and their end has also been described, John is now going to complete the book with the final vision of the saints and their place with God in heaven. So, what does John do? In the preceding chapters, he's encouraging his contemporary readers about what Satan is doing and how God will destroy, not Satan, but how he will destroy uh, the ones that Satan is manipulating, which, are, which is the Roman Empire. Then in this chapter, he shoots forward to the end of time and he's talking to us now in the future. And he's warning us and he's telling us there's going to come a time when this is going to happen again. And when this happens again, Jesus will come and destroy not only the ones that Satan is manipulating, but will destroy Satan as well once and for all. So there's encouragement for the Christians in the first century and there's also encouragement for us who live in the future uh, as well. 
So the final state of the righteous, chapter 21, he says, now that all the enemies have been destroyed, here John includes the present day enemy of the Roman Empire and its persecution of the church, as well as future enemies, including the first, uh, future persecution by future beasts, Satan himself, death itself, once all of these are gone, John describes what will be the final condition of the saints uh, in heaven. So here are the things he says that they will have. Don't have time to read all the two chapters, so I'm going to compress it for you. Here's what they will have, the saints. So the saints will have, first of all, perfect fellowship with God. You wonder, well, what am I going to have in heaven? Perfect fellowship with God. A new heaven and a new earth refers to a new order of things. Okay? The old physical universe is gone and it will be replaced by a new and perfect dimension which will include a place where there is no sea. He says that in verse one, there's no sea. The sea of glass mixed with fire, that's a place of suffering. So there will be no sea there, no place of suffering. Verse two, he says it'll be a place where the church is and is perfected, pure with no sin. That's why the church is seen as the bride of Christ. The ideal bride, of course, dressed in white, uh, dressed in white is pure. And so the church is pure. And we know, we know that the church is the body of Christ, but you know, as we are now, are we pure? Nah, I don't think so, right? We, we still sin, we make mistakes, we don't treat each other the way we ought to treat each other, and so on and so forth. You know, we want to be right, we want to live righteously, but you know, just like Paul says in Romans 7, you know, the things that I want to do, what do I do? I don't do those. And the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing them. You know? So he recognizes that even though we have the desire to live righteously, the flesh is always at war with that desire. So what he's saying here is that in heaven, that war will have ended. The purity and the righteousness that we so hunger for and want in our lives and we want to see in others' lives will be a reality. A place where there will be perfect fellowship with God without interruption from the ravages of sin. This will be in contrast with those who were afraid, you know, remember the one talent servant, or those who have not obeyed the gospel, or those who have been sinners, these, he says, will burn in hell in verse eight. So what will we have in heaven? Perfect fellowship for the saints, eternal torment for the sinners. Uh, perfect, uh, the second thing, final state also includes perfect protection by God in verses nine to 27. So an angel provides a closer look and a more detailed description of the bride. He talks about the saints, the holy city, the righteous, the church, so on and so forth, the images of a holy city. And then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of seven last plagues came and spoke to me saying, uh, come here and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. So John is told uh, what he is about to see. He's going to see the holy city, which is the church. 
that has God's brilliance. How does that work, that has God's brilliance? You remember when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, what was the thing that the eyewitnesses said? He, he was brilliant, it was just shining. It wasn't that light was reflecting on Him, light was emanating from Him. Remember when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was shining, it wasn't coming from Him. The, the brilliance of God had, sh had shone upon Moses to the point that his own face was bright and he wore a veil not to cover the brightness but to cover the fact that the brightness was, was ebbing away. And so he describes heaven, this brightness is there, the beautiful city, the church, the relationship, the life that we have in heaven will be like brilliance, if he says. He, says. he describes the city in verses 12 to 16, he says, uh, it had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west, and the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the uh, 12 apostles uh, of the Lamb. Uh, let's see, one, uh, the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as its width and he measured the city with the rod. 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. So now he's describing the city. Imagine, this is imagery now. You know, the fact that the walls and the angel, there are walls and angels at each of the 12 gates refers to the safety of the city. It's impenetrable. I mean, if the angel is guarding it, nobody gets by, and there are angels at every gate. So the idea is that it is safe. It is a safe place, and when something is safe, it means there's no fear. Uh, he there are names on the gates of the 12 tribes. This identifies who lives in the city or the church the people of God as they were referred to in the Old Testament. And then he says there are 12 foundations with apostles' names, refers to the people of God as they were known in the New Testament. And so who lives there? Well, the people of God in the Old Testament, the people of God in the New Testament. And the city measures 1,500 miles on each side, which is a reference to its size. I mean, think, could you imagine a city that's 1,500 miles, the border 1,500 miles this way, 1,500, I mean, it's immense, right? I mean, there are countries not even that big. The idea is that it's a huge place. There's room for everybody in that place. And then in verses 17 to 27, don't have time to read that, it says, the city, is, the city then is described in terms of the most beautiful and precious things known to man at that time, worth more than anything else. And the light in the city is the Lord Himself and the Lord is its temple. So I want you to note that before the angel measured a temple and he used this as a symbol for God's people. Now that the new heaven and earth are created, there is no need for a temple. The temple was for earthly man. Earthly man needed the temple to go bring his sacrifice and so on and so forth. The holy city in the new heaven and the new earth has no need for a temple where God and man meet together. They now dwell together and the Lord is the temple. 
Why? Well, there's no more sin to separate them, so there's no need for a temple or a place to offer sacrifice, no need for intermediaries anymore. We have a relationship with God. Where else did man have a relationship with God? Well, back in the garden. Back in the Garden of Eden, man had a relationship with God. And so this relationship with God is now renewed in the new heaven and the earth. It says that people of every walk of life are there and each brings his own unique glory to enhance the city without pride or competition. In other words, theologically, is that individuals remain as individuals. You are who you are. You're not absorbed into some greater consciousness where you disappear. You no longer are who you are. You just are erased and you just become part of something bigger. No, you are who you are. You maintain your individualism, but you lose your self-centeredness. Imagine if we all lost our self-centeredness. What a wonderful place even this place would be. Because that's at the root of most of our you know, fussing and fighting with each other, even in the church. And, and in the church we're actually trying to get along. So only these are worthy and will be there. And the fact that the city is so big and the walls are so low and the gates are always open shows that it will be a safe place, a free place, a glorious place to be and to belong. So we have God's perfect fellowship. We have God's perfect protection. Remember the, the question I'm answering is what will we have there? So we said God's perfect fellowship. I've been describing God's perfect protection in the sense of living in that city that's open and light, no fear and so on and so forth. And we will also have God's uh, perfect provision. In chapter 22 he moves on. Everything that you need you will have in the holy city. So let's read this one here, verse one and two. He says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Verses one and two. So the river of life, or the tree of life with fruit and leaves of healing refers to the sources of eternal life and healing from what? Well, what is it that killed us? Sin is what killed us. That's what killed us. So sin began with fruit eaten in disobedience. And now the same symbol represents healing from sin. Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the vine that produces the branches and the fruit that heals. Okay, verses three to five, we need to move quickly now. There will be no longer any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. So no temptation to serve the beast, only one will be served and only one mark will be the mark of the people that will have there, not the mark of the beast, but the mark of the name of Christ on their foreheads. And what is that? 
the seal of the Holy Spirit, right? Paul talks about that in Ephesians 1.3. We're sealed with the Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. Uh, while we're on earth, it's the guarantee that we will resurrect from the dead. How do we know that? Because Paul says in Romans chapter 8, if the Spirit that dwelt in Him, Jesus, that raised Him from the dead, if that same Spirit is dwelling in you, then the Spirit that raised Him from the dead will also raise you from the dead. That's how we're sealed with the Spirit. We're still alive in this body, but at baptism we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the seal, the guarantee that we will resurrect from the dead. So the same idea comes back here in Revelation. Okay? In the Old Testament, the priest wore a turban, there was a little gold plate, and on the gold plate there was printed the, the words, holy to the Lord, or yeah, holy to God, or holy to the Lord. That was on the plate. Well, he says here, we don't wear a turban, we don't wear a plate, we are actually sealed, our heart is sealed with not holy to the Lord, but with the Holy Spirit Himself. Okay. No competition between light and dark. There's only the throne and there's only light and the promise of the saints is that they will reign with Christ forever and that promise made by Paul in 2 Timothy 2.11, if you're faithful with Him, you'll reign with Him. Well, this is the fulfillment of the promise. You will be reigning with Christ. So in the holy city, the new Jerusalem, the saints will dwell in in uh, unspeakable beauty, protected and provided for by God Himself, who will have a direct relationship with the saints. No priests, no apostles, no preachers, no deacons, no elders, no teachers in heaven. God will provide everything and the saints will know and have. And here's the idea. We're going a little long here tonight. Forgive me, it's our last, you know, our last session. I'm trying to get it, I'm trying to get it in. We will be equipped with the kind of body that will be able to stand in the presence of God without wilting, without being burned up. You understand what I'm saying? Right now, we would not want to be in the presence of God with this body. We would disintegrate in a moment. Just the shame of seeing Him and recognizing who we are We'd want to kill ourselves. You understand what I'm saying? Because ordinary sinful men, never mind they were in the face of God, who just came face to face with an angel, fell on their faces in fear, nearly died of fear. Can you imagine what would happen if we sinful men and women came face to face with God in this body? No way. So the promise is you get a new body, what's called a glorified body. What good is that body? Well, it'll enable you to stand before God without fear. You'll be able to take Him in. As much as He wants to give you, you'll be able to take it in. You know, it's like you know, gigabytes and terabytes you know, in a computer will have maximum load capacity to take in what God wants to give us. And so he talks about the witnesses here in verses 6 to 9 and 16. He says, the fact that this is a true account is witnessed by three people. He says, first of all, come on, work with me. Uh, first of all, the angel in verse 16 and verse uh, 6 and 16, he says, the angel confirms that this is true. He confesses that the one who sent him was Jesus himself 
All terms refer to Jesus in different and biblical ways in chapter 22, verses 6 and 16. So the idea is John's wrapping it up and he says, how do you know this is true? Well, we have three witnesses. For Jews, two witnesses was enough, but he, he offers three witnesses, and three witnesses is a divine truth. The angel witnesses, Jesus Himself witnesses in verse 7 and 16, and John witnesses in verse 8 and 9 himself. And then he talks about the instructions. Again, we don't have time. I need another minute to finish here. The instruction. Daniel is told to, uh, let's see, yeah, there we go. Let me just get ahead here a little bit. Daniel is told to, um, um, to seal up his prophecy until the end. No one is to know or understand until the end times, meaning the time of the fourth empire, Rome. John is told exactly the opposite. You know, when it, in Daniel, Daniel wasn't allowed to reveal the prophecy. Well, John, he's told the opposite. He said, open it up, preach it, proclaim it. Okay? The final warning concerning the destruction to Rome is to come. The fact that um, uh, they will not repent um, uh, brings about their final destruction. Verse 17, he makes an invitation. Let's see, do we have anything now? Verse 7, there we go. Let's go, let's go, there he goes. Verse 17, he says, The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, let the one who wishes to take the water of life without come. So Jesus personally invites all who hear these words to come and to believe. At the end, we have the final instructions and blessings that John has. Don't change anything because this is a prophecy, he says. The punishment for doing so is severe. Jesus promises to fulfill all these things Himself and He gives a final blessing from the Lord. Okay, so let me just finish up. We finished the book. I've had to kind of rush it a little bit at the end. Three lessons here, very, very quick, that you get out of this entire book. You, know, you could preach a lot of sermons and a lot of lessons based on Revelation, but I want to leave you with three lessons. Number one lesson is this, Satan is real and he has influence. The inspired text is all about the damage that Satan causes and God's plan to destroy him and his allies and all those who follow him by not believing in Jesus Christ. Satan is in Genesis and Satan is in Revelation. If you don't think the Bible teaches that Satan is real, then you haven't read it carefully. The world's greatest deception is thinking that Satan is not real or not powerful. Second lesson, hell is real. If Satan is real, I guarantee you that hell is real. Again, Revelation makes very clear that such a place exists and it's terrible. I have no joy. Most preachers don't like preaching about hell. It's a terrible thing. We do well to be afraid. We do well to make an effort to avoid this place. That's why it says that we should work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Why? Because to not be saved is a terrible thing. You know, there's no going back after that. You know, this teaching of it'll happen in the twinkling of an eye, there's no time to say, oh, wait, 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 I changed my mind. Too late. Too late. And then the third lesson is, well, heaven is real. John describes it in Jewish apocalyptic terms, 
But 2,000 years later, his point is that heaven is a real place and that it is a blissfully beautiful and joyful place and that God will dwell there with His people and only those who believe in Christ are there. Now that's not politically correct to say that in this day and age, but that's what the Bible teaches. And last I heard, Christian preachers the whole point of their existence is to proclaim that Christ is the Son of God, okay, and that heaven is real, and that we're going there. So this should be an encouragement to those who are Christians to remain faithful, and it should also be an encouragement to those who are not Christians to seriously consider believing in Jesus Christ and obeying the gospel whenever they can. Well, that's it. Daniel Revelation for Beginners, I congratulate you on bearing under 12 lessons. That was a lot of material to go through in just 12 lessons, but I just wanted to give you a feel for these books, okay, and the big ideas contained in them. So thank you very much for your attention and God bless you.